This is the Sex and Psychology Podcast, and it's the sex ed you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. In 2022, the United States Supreme Court reversed a half-century-old ruling that had legalized abortion in this country. Since overturning Roe v. Wade, several states have moved to restrict or ban abortion. Reproductive health care is becoming more difficult to access in certain areas, and some women are traveling great distances to seek it out. At the same time, concern has been growing about how technology could be leveraged as a form of abortion surveillance and tracking. The concern is that law enforcement, or even vigilantes, might start looking to online data that could be used to identify and target women who are seeking to end a pregnancy. Text messages, Google searches, emails, period tracking apps, and more all have the potential to be used against people seeking abortions and anyone who assists them in doing so. In today's episode, we're going to explore how the landscape for abortion care has shifted in the U.S., how online surveillance of abortion is increasing and the effects that this is having, as well as the broader risks of simply living in a time when there's unparalleled surveillance of our intimate lives. I am joined today by Albert Foxconn. He is founder and executive director of the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, also known as STOP. He is a practitioner in residence at NYU Law School's Information Law Institute and a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Carr Center for Human Rights Policy and Yale Law School's Information Society Project. As a lawyer, technologist, and activist, Albert has become a leading voice on how to govern and build the technologies of the future. He started STOP with the belief that local surveillance is an unprecedented threat to public safety, equity, and democracy. This is going to be a fascinating and important conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Have you ever wanted to study abroad before and learn about sex at the same time? Here's your chance. You can join me and the Sexual Health Alliance through our unique study abroad program on sex and culture. Our next course offerings are in May 2024 in Amsterdam and Berlin, where you'll have a chance to explore different cultures, engage in immersive learning experiences, and meet international experts in the field of sexuality, all while making new friends and having a lot of fun. Some of the topics we explore in these courses include sex education, sexual health, sex work, LGBTQ plus issues, kink practices, and more. Come meet amazing people, gain valuable insights, and have a transformative learning experience. Visit sexualhealthalliance.com to learn more and secure your spot today. Hi, Albert, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. So you work for an organization called STOP, which stands for Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. As a starting point, can you tell us a little bit about what this organization is all about and what you're trying to accomplish in general? Yeah, so I founded STOP about five years ago because I was really concerned about the growing threat from government use of novel surveillance technologies, particularly at the state and local level. You know, we've seen this exponential growth in surveillance capacity in private sector at the federal level, especially in the decades since 9-11. But we hadn't seen as much pushback at the state and local level where, you know, so much of this surveillance is taking place. There are 18,000 state and local police departments across the 
country. And increasingly, they're looking like mini NSAs. And when we look at how a variety of laws are being enforced today, including you know ever more stringent uh, restrictions on abortion and gender affirming care, it's often being done through surveillance. And so We've done a lot to kind of push back. We love to sue the NYPD. We're based in New York, and most of our work is prioritizing actions in New York, but we support groups around the country. We also write a lot of new laws, including bans on some of the creepiest forms of surveillance that we'll talk about today. We do a lot in the media to try to change the conversation and debunk the surveillance narrative that somehow if we just violate everyone's rights and watch everyone at all times will be able to prevent crimes before they happen. Here's the trick. It doesn't actually work. Uh, we also have uh, white papers, research reports, and we, we do a lot to try to convene community spaces where we ensure that those who are most directly impacted by these new dystopian technologies can really come together in community to help push back against the threat that they pose, not just to their individual rights, not just to their communities, but really to democracy itself. Thanks for sharing that. It sounds like you've got your hands in a whole bunch of different things, and we could probably talk for hours about all of that. But I want to talk today about the work that your organization is doing around pregnancy and abortion care surveillance. But before we dive into that, let's talk about what the abortion landscape looks like today in the United States, because it shifted dramatically following the 2022 Supreme Court decision in the case of Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. So how has the landscape for abortion care shifted in this country since that ruling was issued. It's bad. This is a nightmare. If you had written this as a script for a TV show five years ago, 10 years ago, it would have been called dystopian science fiction. But what we see today is a growing number of states and localities are passing ever more stringent restrictions on abortion access. And, you know, we should note that, you know, the pre-Dobbs world was not a panacea. Part of the reason why our research reports were able to identify so many different surveillance technologies that police can weaponize against abortion access is they've been doing this for years. You know, even prior to Dobbs, they were still criminalizing abortion. But what we've seen since Dobbs is dozens of states enacting really restrictive limits on abortion, in many cases, effectively eliminating the provision of abortion care within their states, many increasingly making it easy for private litigants to bring civil suits. We see, you know, these absurd efforts to try to reclassify abortion as homicide in some jurisdictions. We see this push also to extend the reach of these restrictions beyond the borders of the state. Because what you know, abortion activists quickly realized is that if you use your legislative power to shut down all abortion access, all abortion clinics, all providers within a jurisdiction, well, guess what? People are going to leave the state to get care or they're going to get telemedicine care online. And so there's been an effort to try to address those avenues to healthcare. We see states that are contemplating legislation that would make it a crime to leave the state for the purposes of obtaining abortion care, or which would try to reinterpret the existing statutes in a broad way that applies to that. We've also seen localities like Lubbock, Texas, I believe, was a recent one where they had an initiative that would make it illegal to use the roads in Lubbock to leave the state to obtain a abortion care. So this is not just a horrific attack on bodily autonomy. This isn't just an attack on pregnant people's lives. 
and those are awful enough as it is, it's also a growing constitutional crisis as we see the states that are actively attacking abortion really coming to a growing conflict with the states that are taking efforts to try to protect abortion care within their borders. States like New York, states like California that want to ensure that people can come here to safely get health care. And I think we're going to see a lot of this ending up in the courts in the coming years. Yeah, I mean, all of this has me thinking about how prescient The Handmaid's Tale was as a book and a television series in terms of the direction that things are heading, because there is this increasing push for government intervention and surveillance when it comes to people's ability to access any kind of abortion care. Now, I want to go back to something that you mentioned, because prior to the Dobbs ruling, abortion surveillance was already a thing in the United States, and you had some non-state actors who were carrying this out. But you even had, at the time when abortion was constitutionally protected, you had some police and prosecutors engaging in surveillance too, because different states had different abortion laws and regulations. So pre-2022, what did abortion surveillance in America look like, and what were the goals of the people who were doing it? Well, I mean, when we look at surveillance of abortion, it mirrors every other facet of policing in the U.S. in that it is incredibly racist, it's incredibly discriminatory, especially targeting low-income black and brown individuals. We've seen, you know, a number of efforts to weaponize these new surveillance technologies we talk about, but a lot of it is based off of medical surveillance, for example, with a lot of work to try to use people's hospital visits as a way to interrogate what the reason is that they had a miscarriage. So prior to Dobbs, a lot of states still had these draconian restrictions on abortion after the first trimester. In, in many states, a complete bar after the second trimester, there was a constant push to regulate how abortion could be provided and a lot of efforts to try to enforce those restrictions. So, you know, what you saw is that when people did have miscarriages, that you would have a tox screen, a drug panel being run by healthcare officials. And if it showed that they're used a controlled substance, that could be provided to law enforcement as a warrantless search of their body, of their own medical records, and then having that being used as a tool to allege that they illegally had an abortion. We also saw a lot of the things that we're worried about going forward, searches of people's Google search history and other search activity, uh, searches of their communication with friends and family. Oftentimes, what we see with historical prosecutions is that the electronic surveillance that is now ubiquitous in American life oftentimes isn't the starting place with abortion enforcement, but it's a confirmatory part of the investigation. It becomes the evidence that substantiates the allegations that once, you know, family members, friends, healthcare providers, colleagues, other people go to police to start the ball rolling with one of these investigations, these electronic trails will be what helps police and prosecutors um, move forward with the case. And, and I think it's important to recognize, though, before we go further down this path, a lot of this can be terrifying. And the potential for abuse here is terrifying. And when we think about A Handmaid's Tale and, and sort of the truly dystopian science fiction that stems from these types of abuses, 
it really can give people a lot of pause. And I, I, I still think we have a responsibility to make clear that the single most dangerous thing for most people in most situations is to forego care when they need it. And so while we're doing a lot to try to push back against the growing amount of surveillance out there and doing a lot to help educate people about the steps they can take to protect themselves if they are leaving the state for gang care, none of this should be interpreted as telling people not to get care. Instead, it's sort of a wake-up call for legislators and lawmakers that they have an opportunity to sort of curtail some of the damage that's being done by police surveillance and private sector data collection. Yeah, and I think that that's a really good point and something that we've talked about previously on the show, that if you look at something like pregnancy, it's not a risk-free experience, right? And it can be one of the most dangerous times in a in a woman's life because there are all kinds of things that can go wrong with a pregnancy. So we could certainly have a whole separate discussion about that, but I want to stick to this surveillance issue and I want to build on what you were just saying. So since the Dobbs ruling, in what ways has abortion care surveillance changed? Does the landscape look any different today? Are the tools that are being used for surveillance changing? What kind of data are people collecting? In short, where do you think this is all heading? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we tend to focus on at STOP is trying to project forward from where we are today, because there's this really problematic thing about surveillance. It's invisible. And so it may impact all of us. It may impact us deeply. But oftentimes we don't know about the specific ways it's being deployed till years after the fact. So what we've tried to do is model out the ways we think it's likely that this debate will evolve and the ways that we think it's likely that these surveillance technologies will be abused while recognizing that it's going to be a few years before we understand the full scope of this. You know, already we have a few anecdotes, such as the really terrifying case out of Nebraska, where a uh, mother and daughter were both arrested and charged with unlawfully obtaining an abortion, in part because of Facebook Messenger data that was seized as part of an investigation. And that sort of is, you know, very much in line with what we've seen historically, where this sort of, you know, communications data, messaging data is oftentimes one of the most vulnerable things as part of an investigation. So we tend to focus on ways to help encourage people to move to encrypted alternatives and uh, really trying to push back on some of the efforts that we see in the legislature to weaken encryption, the sort of encryption that people rely on for secure communication. We also are very worried about the potential abuse of geofence warrants and keyword warrants. So these are pretty new techniques. Geofence warrants have been around for maybe six years now, but they've exploded. They went from just a handful of them the first years that Google reported to being the majority of warrants that Google now receives, thousands of geofence warrants. And with a geofence warrant, it's very different from a traditional warrant. Under a traditional warrant, I might go to a court, Justin, and say, you know what? I've got probable cause that Justin is doing something bad. I want to get Justin's location data. I want to get Justin's you know, past correspondence. I want to get all these records. And as sort of daunting as that may sound, it's still just one person. 
But with a geofence warrant, it can be thousands of people's information because instead of asking for a specific person's data, you are getting a court order for information about every single person to enter a geofence, to enter a specific geographic area. And that geofence can be huge. It can be the size of a small town. It can encompass thousands and thousands of people. It can last for weeks at a time. It is essentially the perfect tool for a digital dragnet. And we've already seen this used to target you know, houses of worship, political protests, and it is easily something that can be weaponized against abortion care facilities. Google responded to this by saying, oh, no, 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 don't worry. We're going to stop recording location data around abortion facilities. A, that was a terrible plan from the beginning because they don't even know where those facilities are located a lot of time. And because if you suddenly have a gap in your location records, that's something that you can make an inference off of. And on top of it, it felt like a half measure at best. But you know, recently, the Washington Post did an investigation and found that you know Google wasn't even doing that much. And so right now, law enforcement can go out and get a court order to identify all of the people going to abortion care facilities within the state of New York, for example. And this is crucial because, you know, prior to Roe back in the 70s, there was no way for Texas to enforce its abortion laws in New York, even if it had wanted to, even if it was willing to have a constitutional crisis, because it just didn't have a way to, you know, station that many Texas Rangers outside of facilities all across New York. But today, you don't need to do that. You just need to send the warrant to Google and to other tech companies. And so that's something that that we're quite concerned about and actively working to outlaw. And, and similarly with a keyword warrant, it's also a digital dragnet, but instead of being defined by what physical place people have gone to, it's a list of everyone to search for a specific term, which when you think about the prospects of that being used to target abortion are just horrifying because simply searching for methapristone or another abortion medication could be enough to then fall into this sort of digital dragnet. We think these are unconstitutional and, and we're actively working to advance legislation that would end this type of threat. It's fascinating and scary. And you can easily imagine how if you took this outside of the context of abortion, all the potential for abuse of people's privacy in all kinds of ways in their lives. And it was interesting, the example that you shared about the mother and daughter who were being charged in relation to having those text messages that they had shared with one another, because something I've heard many anti-abortion individuals say over the years is that the goal is not to go after pregnant women or people who seek abortions, it's to go after the providers and the people who are doing it to stop them. But we're seeing that they are actually in many cases, criminalizing the women themselves who are seeking these procedures. And so building on that a little bit further, I wanted to ask whether you've seen any examples or have any other data that can speak to how these surveillance practices are actually having an effect on pregnant women's decision-making and feelings of agency. Do we have any sense of the real-world impacts on that? Is it changing abortion rates? What do we know? I speak with partner organizations and, and just with individuals when I give these talks all the time who talk about 
just the level of fear that they have thinking about trying to get access care. I did a, a lecture at the University of Tennessee not too long ago, and I was hearing these heartbreaking stories from students down there about what it's like to contemplate getting care at a moment like this. And and that's why I think it's really so important to emphasize that as a legal matter, as a political matter, as a mobilization matter, there's a lot we need to do, but this shouldn't be something that dissuades people from getting the life-saving care that they need or just being able to still pursue bodily autonomy and those basic rights. But I do think that because of the political pressures we see on, you know, conservative police and prosecutors in anti-choice states, people are going to continue to, you know, push for more and more enforcement here. And you're going to see a lot of conservative politicians and a lot of prosecutors or would-be politicians in the making. They'll try to build their careers around this by being the ones taking the most aggressive stances, pushing this the furthest. And, you know, as we were saying in the beginning, we already have a lot of heartbreaking examples of the ways that pre-Dobbs abortion laws were being used to put pregnant people behind bars for getting care at a time when we still had a constitutional right to seek abortion. As it turns out, people do change. It happens all of the time on Field, spelled F-E-E-L-D, a dating app for the curious. Radical transformation is so common here that there's a term for it, the field effect. The proof is in the stats. For example, 62% of field members evolve their sexuality, interests, and desires within their first year on the app. And 181,000 people change their sexuality within their first year of using field. Why do so many stories of transformation run through the field community? This space draws open-minded people. In fact, one in two people on field have a kink. Field is the place where you can freely explore your desires and discover who you really are sexually. Curious? For a limited time, receive a free month of Majestic membership when you download the app as a new member. Simply use the link in the show notes to download Field or head to field.co slash Justin to access this offer. That's F-E-E-L-D dot co slash Justin. Another form of surveillance that I want to talk about is in regard to gender-affirming care, because this is another area where in the last couple of years, it's become a big political flashpoint and the legal ground around it has changed considerably, particularly with regard to trans youth. So what's the current state of gender-affirming care in the U.S. and how have things changed in the last few years? Yeah, you've seen an explosion in state laws taking aim at gender-affirming care. Uh, the ACLU has a tracker, and I believe the last time I looked, it was close to 20 states that had passed legislation targeting gender-affirming care. But it's heartbreaking. You know, In a lot of jurisdictions, it's simply not legal to get evidence-based medical care for those under 18. And in many jurisdictions, the restrictions also impact adults' abilities to get care, especially for those who rely on uh, Medicaid or other publicly financed medical benefits that have also been restricted. And so with gender-affirming care, there is the same concern about the ability to travel out of state to get care. But because there's oftentimes ongoing medical treatment, it can become even harder 
to get sustained care in jurisdictions where that's illegal. I also worry about parents and kids who live in a place like New York and then go down to Disney World. And what happens if you are then administering medical care to your child while you're on a family vacation? Like, that's what I think people are only trying to uh, really come to grips with is the idea that if we really do see these laws enforced the way that a lot of pundits want them to be, you're going to end up in a situation where where a lot of people have to basically wall themselves off and just avoid traveling to half the country for fear that they'll be prosecuted just for getting medical care when they go. Now, different states obviously have different laws when it comes to abortion and gender-affirming care, as we've been discussing. And some people might be tempted to assume that if you cross state lines in order to access care, that you'd be in the clear. Because if it was legal in that other state, that that would be fine. But is it actually safe to do that? And in what ways can you be tracked when you travel to another state to access health care? Well, this is the constitutional crisis that I'm really worried about, that we haven't really seen anything like this since the Fugitive Slave Act and, you know, those debates in the 19th century, that states have broad jurisdiction to criminalize behavior when at least some material act in uh, furtherance of that crime takes place within their jurisdiction. And so if you're in a state and you're taking steps to get an abortion or to get gender-affirming care and then leave that state, under a lot of our case law, there's pretty broad powers there to say that even though you got abortion care out of state, even though you got gender-affirming care out of state, you still can be subject to criminal jurisdiction when you return. And that, I think, is the thing that we only have begun to start to think through. And and where we already see, especially in the abortion context, clear calls from some lawmakers to explicitly extend state law to apply beyond its territory in that type of situation. And traveling anonymously has never been harder. You know, uh, we see that airline data is uh, provided to law enforcement in real time through Sabre and other systems. We see that, you know, automated license plate readers are tracking cars more easily than ever. In our report, we we tried to look at the ways you could best reduce your tracking footprint when you're going uh, to get care out of state. And we found that traveling by bus, especially if you pay by cash, offered you know some of the greatest privacy protections. The more that you can pay with cash, if you're able to travel without any electronic devices on you, these sort of steps can mitigate the tracking. But of course, you know, with any sort of privacy protection, we always make the point that it's about threat modeling and harm reduction. If nothing's ever going to be perfect. Everything's going to always vary depending on the individual who's taking these steps. And so with threat modeling, you have to go through the step of thinking, well, what is my risk profile? How likely is it that you know people are going to go after me? What is the most acute dangers that I can most easily solve? And then how much am I willing to pay in either dollars and cents or in time and inconvenience in order to avoid those harms? And for some people, it may not be practical to pay for a bus ticket in cash and you know travel without any phone. It may be unsafe. It may just be too costly and too time intensive. But that tends to be 
the mode that we most often recommend. And then also times when you're in a jurisdiction traveling via mass transit, again, using cash, avoiding private cars, avoiding Ubers and Lyfts and you know uh, platforms which have their data easily obtained by law enforcement to get to the medical provider once you're in that community. So many things to think about here, and we didn't even get into facial recognition technology and its growing use and all of the implications that that has for our privacy and security. But I want to go back to something that I mentioned a little earlier, which is that everything that we've been talking about here isn't just limited to abortion and gender-affirming care, right? The fact that we have our private lives subject to such a detailed level of surveillance has much broader implications, especially in a time when you have some Supreme Court justices arguing for repealing other rights, such as lifting bans on sodomy laws and making it possible for states to ban contraception entirely. And hypothetically, if you were, say, a government employee and you lived in a state where sodomy and contraception were illegal, but there was digital surveillance data that could track the trip that you made to a gay club or to a Planned Parenthood clinic in another state, that could very easily be weaponized against you. So beyond abortion and gender-affirming care access, what do you see as some of the broader risks of living in this time of unparalleled surveillance? Yeah, I mean, and and we've seen people having their lives upended already by surveillance of their sex lives. You know, we've seen data from Grindr being used to identify individuals who were in the closet and and to blackmail them or to out them and threaten them. We, We saw a senior Catholic official being targeted by a very conservative Catholic news outlet with uh, geolocation data, and I believe it was Grindr data as well, about a year ago. You know, stepping back, when I think about the capacity to track all of us with this degree of invasiveness and intimacy, it really, it threatens the autonomy that is sort of indispensable to a democratic society, not in the philosophical terms of not not regarding our political system, but an open society, uh, the type of society that I would consider the sort I would want to live in. You know, the Walter Benjamin talked about the flaneur and the ability to wander and this idea that there is such a profound value in being able to live our lives without second guessing how every decision we make might be viewed in retrospect by those who have an incentive to challenge our choices and make our identities a crime. And I think about moments like McCarthyism and the you know the 1950s and the number of people who had their entire lives destroyed because they had either political views or sexual identities that were viewed as dangerous by those in power and you know the lengths that the FBI and other intelligence agencies went to at the time to identify people based off their political views based off of their sexual orientation and today they would have exponentially more power to do that and you know for that hypothetical that government employee living in a state that increasingly is passing laws against their identity Yes, there are steps we can take to mitigate that threat personally. There are steps we can take to reduce our electronic signature, but nothing is going to be perfect. And even the exercise of having to constantly play 
defense, like constantly have to be on guard about anonymizing your, you know, who you are and hiding from the world. That is so emotionally damaging and incredibly toxic. That is not the country I grew up in, as flawed as it was, as horrific as it was. If we go down that path, we really do become the thing of dystopian science fiction. Yeah, and everything you said there has me thinking about the old saying about how history always repeats itself. And I think that's why we all need to be excellent students of history, because if we don't understand the past and how things happened before, we're bound to repeat the mistakes of the past again in the future. So thank you for sharing all of this information, Albert. I look forward to continuing our conversation in the next episode and talking about ways of further reducing these risks and staying safe. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Yes. No, thank you so much for having me. And, you know, for those of you who want to learn more about the different bills we're passing, the different lawsuits we're filing, or just the adorable puppies and kittens we have around the virtual office, also combating the surveillance state, uh, it's stopspying.org. Or uh, we're also stopspyingny on your uh, surveillance capitalism social media platform of choice. Well, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate having you here and I'll be sure to include links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you again for having me. Thank you for listening. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter and TikTok at Justin Lee Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Lee Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. And if you have a question you'd like me to answer on a future episode of this show, you can leave me a podcast voicemail at speakpipe.com slash sex and psychology. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.